I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. The first workable prototype of the internet came in the late 1960s. As computers became more attainable, internet accessibility increased. By the mid-90s, everyone was talking about it. It spans the globe like a superhighway. It is called Internet. Just what is this main artery of the information superhighway? Every business, no matter how large, no matter how small, will be on the Internet in the year 2000. It's the primary way that people will look up information. It will replace the yellow pages as we know it today. How does one, what do you write to it, like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate with, I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what Internet is? The internet, from the beginning, brought about a newfound freedom and an ease to connecting with communities, which would create the final element and environment to spark the co-working space concept. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. To explain the rise and evolution of co-working spaces, you must consider the two major historical shifts, the economy and technology. On an economic front, think back to the early 1900s, where the term gig was spawned by jazz club musicians. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, 
Version 1.0 of the gig economy existed, where individuals had greater work flexibility, working as farmers, shop owners, barbers, etc. However, by the 1930s, after the Industrial Revolutions, Great Depression, and World War II, American desires shifted, trading in employment freedoms for security and stability. In addition, earlier labor wars where workers demanded better lives also established an industrial democracy where everyone had stake in business prosperity. This created one of the most prosperous times in America as the wealth gap was much narrower than current times and government programs created lots of jobs in sectors like construction and manufacturing. Yet, by the 1970s and 80s, there began to be a shift in corporate leadership where the top increasingly got more and more of the pie. As job benefits, security, and stability began to dwindle for employees, their appetite for loyalty decreased and their desires for more autonomy began to grow again. During the 1990s, 10% of the U.S. workforce was employed as contractors, temporary employees, and on-call workers as demand for flexibility intensified. Concurrently, technological advancements were on the rise and on a path to collide and transform the workforce. If you think about a workforce that primarily in the past was people who could not find employment in another way would use the gig work, which is primarily getting paid for portions of a job or for a task-based project versus getting paid on a full-time basis. That's Swapna Sathian, Director of Strategy and Change Consulting for Canon Design. She leads Blue Cottage of Canon Design's workplace strategy and change consulting practice. Relying on innovative data-driven analytics, she helps organizations shape their people, process, and place strategies to align with and empower their business goals. I reached out to Swapna to provide some insight into the gig economy and how it's affecting workplaces and the workforce. While that was in the past, what the platforms have allowed that workforce to do is to go from passive gig workers to active gig workers. So you have a lot more people now who have the ability and want to use the gig economy because it provides three main things. It provides autonomy, flexibility, and it allows for people to do what they want to do, which that last thing becomes the most important thing as we go forward. So as you think about generations and how the whole attitude to work is changing, what is becoming really important is, are people finding purpose in what they're doing? The internet was increasingly changing the way that people could collaborate all over the world. Seabase, one of the world's first hackerspaces, was founded in Berlin in 1995. Many consider hackerspaces to be the precursors to co-working spaces, but it is Brad Newberg who is credited with opening the first true co-working space in 2005. While working on his startup, he felt conflicted. He wanted to find a way to combine the feeling of independence and freedom of working by himself with the community feel and structure of working with others. He developed a new type of space that delivered that structure and community feel that he wanted. 
According to Newberg, the very first co-working space was San Francisco co-working space, located within a company called Spiral Muse, a feminist collective. Newberg had friends there and mentioned his co-working idea to one of them, Elena Auerbach. She agreed to let him use the space at Spiral Muse twice a week for a total of $300 a month, earning any profits past that for himself. This concept exploded, spreading worldwide. Today it is estimated that there are more than 5,000 co-working spaces in the US and more than 19,000 around the world. While big companies dominate the global market, a remarkable amount of independent businesses are quickly scaling to the range of 5 to 10 locations, dominating market share in certain cities and regions. Newberg's driving concept of an autonomous work structure with a communal environment had a big impact on design, eventually establishing a common look and feel to encourage community. Open collaborative space, flexible desks, designated areas for brief privacy, communal and social spaces, and vibrant and stimulating design elements. With the relation to early hackerspaces, it's no wonder that many tech companies were early to adopt this type of work environment. Community was thought to bring a massive value to productivity and professional development through peer learning and an energy that inspires. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and I've always seen myself working in that type of way, which is for myself. So when I went to a co-working space, I felt literally, it sounds so cheesy, but as soon as the elevator doors opened up, I literally could feel the entrepreneurial spirit alive and well in that space. I, it was incredibly energizing. And I am the type of person that feeds off of the energy of other people. And so maybe that's why I felt that way. To get an idea of what these spaces are like from a user perspective, I chatted with a friend of mine, Sarah McGee, who is a sole proprietor, designer and consultant, and a user of a few different co-working spaces in our region. So the energy was tangible, as crazy as that sounds. And again, probably being an architect, I really could appreciate how beautiful the space was. They'd really put so much attention to detail and furnishings and colors, and you could tell that it was done with thought and intention. So I would definitely say that going to co-working spaces was a huge upgrade from going and being in a normal office environment. And it's interestingly just the little things, you know, um, the coffee, just the freedom to open the fridge and grab a small snack. Um, things that I also just do at home, right? I go downstairs, I have my coffee, I open the fridge, have a small snack. And there is something to be said about architects and designers. You know, we design places to make people feel more comfortable. And it's that intangible experience that we're all trying to achieve. And that really spoke to me because when you enter a space like that and you work in a space like that, it's hard to ignore that it's, um, it is actually bringing a great feeling out of that. But uh, I would say those were the things that were the lasting impressions for me. Did that evolve over time? Yeah, a little bit. I still feel like that kind of entrepreneurial energy was always there. You could just, you could really feel it. So I don't think that really faded. But I think I became in tune to some of the things I didn't love so much about co-working spaces that at first was really fun and exciting. That after a while, I thought, okay, this is slightly annoying or is going to continue to get old. For anyone who hasn't been inside of one, they're 
mostly comprised of storefront glass partitions that are, you know, it's a large open space that's been divided down into a lot of small spaces for one to two people up to maybe six to eight. There's some rooms that have like maybe you could have 12 people in them, but their sweet spot is kind of the two to four. And it's all glass. And if you can imagine, that really is not great acoustics. And so, and it's, you know, beautifully hardwood floors or polished concrete. So again, it's a lot of hard surfaces that makes sound attenuation just echo throughout the spaces. You can often hear your neighbor's conversation and it might be when at the time that you're on a conference call and, you know, you kind of just roll with it. But I would think over time that definitely got old. Um, the common areas are so great. And sometimes you want to choose to work out inside some of the common areas because then you get to interact with different people. But I would say I did on a number of times experience people really anxious to tell you about their business. <laughs> and it almost felt like you were being sold, whatever it was that they were doing. And a lot of times when I, especially when I was at the co-working space, because I used it as my secondary office, that when I was there, I was really there just to work with the people that I was meeting. And so I didn't really want to be bothered a whole lot. <laughs> I love being social, but there comes a point where you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm done talking to you right now. And then interestingly, at, and I don't know if this is like a geographical location or if different co-working spaces start to attract a specific type of people. But when I was at the co-working space um, in the Spectrum, it seemed to have a ton of mortgage brokers. So suddenly had a personality, which I didn't know if I really fit into anymore. As great as co-working spaces can be, sometimes there are a few drawbacks. We didn't really talk about this, but that is one of the drawbacks is the cost. And so for me as a sole proprietor or as an architectural consultant, the work ebbs and flows. And so there's some months where I'm super busy and other months where I really just don't have much work coming in. So it's hard to keep that on my books as a fixed cost and to, to always find value in that space or that experience when I do have a home office available. In 2019, there was a lot of news about the near collapse of co-working giant WeWork, which led some to wonder if the co-working concept was flawed. It appears that this was more of a case of mismanagement, impractical growth, and unrealistic goals. Current studies show that by the year 2027, 50% of the workforce in the U.S. will be participating in the gig economy. Wow. So if you think about that, and then if you also look at it from organizational leaders, 40% of leaders are saying that they expect that their gig workforce will continue to grow. And contrary to what most people may think, this is not just the low-scale workers. This is all the way to executive uh, work. So you have everything from you know, driving your Uber car to doing software development and management consulting as part of the gig workforce. So it, it really is something that we need to think about from a space perspective as to what is it those in the gig economy are reluctant to join the traditional workforce and it's quite plausible that over the years people in the traditional workforce will want to get a part of the gig experience so as we design spaces that are going to stay for the next couple of decades we need to be thinking about 
how can we promote that gig experience, whether it is for the gig workforce or for your traditional workforce. Some studies suggest that by 2027, independent professionals will make up 60% of the workforce. In addition, 94% of current employees would consider this non-traditional employment, and 64% of employees say they prefer gig work to traditional employment. This sentiment was increasingly influencing corporate leadership to consider new approaches to office structures. Then, now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know: a Washington State resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. Officials now say more than 400 people have been sickened, and nine people have died. The World Health Organization and the NBA has made the decision. They have just announced that they are suspending play starting tomorrow. NBA play is suspended. But this is the last golf's most NBA prestigious NBA. tournament, the Masters, announced it is postponing this year's event. It had been scheduled for mid-April, just a month from now. That news coming after last night's news that the PGA Tour canceled its current event after just one day and has shut down all events for the next three weeks. And just a short while ago, we also learned the Boston Marathon, which had been scheduled for April 20th, that would be postponed into September. Overnight, the XFL, which Vince McMahon just launched this year, it will forever be known as the day sports shut down. The NCAA has canceled its winter and spring championships. That includes March Madness and the Final Four, which was scheduled for Atlanta. It also means hockey's Frozen Four and the College World Series are also off the books. Baseball is the biggest professional league to make changes today, saying all spring training games are suspended, and they're pushing the start of the season back. March 2020. COVID-19, an infectious disease that was rapidly circulating in communities around the world, reached a breaking point in the U.S. The virus is a respiratory illness that was eventually found to spread primarily through droplets of saliva or discharge from the nose when an infected person coughs or sneezes. The scary thing is that you could have the disease and spread it unknowingly. Older people and those with underlying medical problems like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, and cancer are more likely to develop serious illness. Concerns about the disease turned the world upside down. A survey of more than 14,000 co-working spaces around the world found that 72% of them had witnessed a significant drop in the number of people using their space. And 41% had seen memberships decrease during the pandemic. The co-working space market is expected to contract by 12.9% in 2020. Even as the number of remote workers surged, the threat of the infection prevented co-working spaces from cashing in on this new clientele. These co-working spaces are known for their density and bringing a lot of people in, so the price per square foot goes really high. And so, if we're looking at occupancy or the number of people that congregate in spaces, you know, maybe that doesn't lend itself to the potential of us needing to distance from one another, or <laughs> you know, the common areas. Now you're sharing it with hundreds of people versus maybe 50 people in a traditional office setting. So, I think that's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that. Co-working spaces were greatly impacted during the pandemic. But it's predicted that they will thrive on the back end, as revelations of remote work are pushing employers to shift to a distributed workforce. 
right now, if you ask what is the number one challenge for most organizations, it's finding the right talent and keeping them. And if you're faced with a future where people have options like you have, and we are hearing, you know, 80% of those in the gig economy are saying, we don't want to leave this. You, you can't pay us any, any amount of money to leave this economy. And we like being our own masters. There's this whole concept of a digital nomad now where you will see a lot of people saying, when I'm young, I'm going to take time off and go see the world. It's not that they don't want to be working, but they don't want to be constrained by the work, uh, physical work environment. This is how business is evolving for those more nimble, agile organizations. And so is that solution going to come for every organization, for those large, traditional, stable organizations that have worked a certain way for 100 years, have a, a huge footprint? It's likely, like you said, going to be really cumbersome. But they may, on the con side, lose out on some of their talent to companies who can be more agile. It's going to be a self-selection route for a lot of people because you have people who are comfortable on both sides and they're going to be able to pick where they want to go. If you think about how agile work happens, for example, and you have the need for teams to work together and you have, you know, people brainstorming around a whiteboard and you have the need for uh, proximity to be able to to solve problems real time. And if you think about inserting a gig worker into that environment, whether physically or virtually, what will start becoming really important is continuing to build those virtual connectivity tools and collaboration tools. So how can you have a person who is sitting maybe in a different office in a different place or a co-working area in a different area or a different country or a different state be able to connect with this landed team and be a part of that agile team? And so I think those are areas that we'll continue to see more of is how can you be a gig worker, but also connected. Another interesting trend is that the gig economy is actually growing faster in emerging economies than in the developed world. And so if you think about the shift of where economies are going in the future, it's something that they are leapfrogging into because it opens the doors for talent in a way that the diversity that you get from an gig economy is something that corporations are seeking now because it levels all differences in background and age and gender it just allows people to come forth and be a part of the workforce who did not have that recourse on you. Yeah. How are you seeing this affect the way that we design our spaces? Primarily, a lot of the discussions that I have are with the C-suite, because when we talk about spaces and especially space strategy, I think it's a disservice if we limit it to only one part of the organization. So traditionally, facilities teams have been you know, looking at real estate and space planning, and they do it from a, a very siloed lens of how can we optimize the space for our needs. And I think uh, in recent years, companies have realized the importance of having human resources be a part of that dialogue. And what we are trying to do is elevate it to where it's a C-suite discussion 
to say, as you think about your strategic growth for the company, what are you seeing? So how are you seeing your workforce shaping up? What portions of your work are going to get automated? Where do you see robotics coming into play? And so in that context, the alternative workforce becomes a strategic decision. And so that's one part of it to say what portion of your current workforce may actually be a part of either contractors or flexible workers or gig workers. How much of that is going to be virtual versus physical? And then most importantly, where we finally drive most organizations to is to start thinking about the user experience. Even the traditional workforce will start looking for the same things the gig workforce is attracted by. And so that boils down to autonomy. Can I work at the times that suit me? Can I choose where I want to work? Which means you should have the technology to support virtual working. And so if we can get to a point where you can use your space, and, and that's where it also starts making sense from an efficiency standpoint, because now if you have a workforce that is more flexible, more autonomous, you've got to start thinking about a few things. One is, you know, apart from the collaborative space and the innovative space and the flexibility, just more um, practical things. For example, if you have people who are not there all the time, do you need to have locker or storage space for them? Is there some kind of a delivery space that they could use that would allow them to flex between different employers? Then you think about the more important things. If you have a certain person working for different employers, how do you start safeguarding against IP? What policies do you have to play, put in place so that you know that you still have people who can give you their capabilities and skill sets, but not take away from what you're doing at an organization level. So then there's the question of physical security. So you have people coming and going. How do you control for some of that? How do you have collaboration between people who are the traditional workforce and the gig workforce? And so it, it starts bleeding into other areas starting from the portability of benefits, the IP rights, the security conversations. And I think the outcome for all of it, if we were to fast forward a decade, is going to be you will have this more networked organization where people will work across borders, not just geographical borders, but organizational borders. Co-working companies with cash reserves to make it through the pandemic will likely take advantage once reliable vaccines are available. Despite and in part because of the pandemic, co-working spaces seem to have an even brighter future, but they still may evolve slightly. The Harvard Business Review conducted a design study where they looked at better office typologies. The study presents many concepts that look more like co-working environments, and even suggests utilizing these spaces in lieu of large corporate offices. They argue that distributing workers throughout the city or region into smaller workspaces and giving them the chance to collaborate more with colleagues who live in proximity could create several benefits. From a resilience perspective, employees can adapt and navigate disruptions like a natural disaster, a power outage, compromised infrastructure, or a major traffic disruption easier. From a business development perspective, 
It can bring organizations closer to clients or customers and closer to job seekers or other talent pools from an employment perspective. They argue that this new structure would facilitate more high-quality connections essential for strengthening existing teams and creating new relationships within and among organizations. I would agree with this benefit. From my experience, my longest tenures with previous employers was often because I enjoyed the people around me. Harvard Business Review envisions that there is an appeal for companies big and small to utilize co-working spaces. They anticipate that co-working spaces can thrive again as companies are forced to restructure and rework their finances. To do so, co-working companies will have to make cleaning a priority throughout the day to make users feel comfortable in shared spaces. Previous co-working models crammed as many people as possible into each office. Going forward, they will need to provide more space, adapted workstations, and optimize shared facilities. Technology, including automatic doors, hands-free equipment, and check-ins, and smart lighting are must-haves. Plexiglass shields between desks will be the new norm, and there may be some reduction in communal meeting rooms. The flexibility of different desks every day may be a concern as some occupants will want a space that they can trust. The co-working concept has been fueled by the gig economy, tied to the pendulum swing of corporate leadership decisions and subsequent economic effects. Historically, companies' choices to either serve executives, shareholders, and profit margins, or take care of their employees, often steered employees' desires for more autonomy or inspired loyalty in exchange for benefits, security, and stability. The opportunities of remote work and co-working spaces could introduce the best of both worlds. Furthermore, for those that outright prefer the gig economy, they have a route to liberation from corporate America. The possibility of a return to the autonomy and independence in both cases are a nod back to a pre-industrial economy. Every worker could be, or at least feel like, they are their own boss. Overarchingly, I think the one thing everybody needs to focus on is experience because that is what will continue to drive good talent, increase productivity. And if you look at it from the lens of the user and the collaboration between different kinds of users will become more and more important. Historically, we've now found peace between the contractor and the full-time employee. We just have to extend that piece to contractor, full-time employee, gig worker, and who knows what else will come up. That's all for this episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.